0: Please take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Paul's epistle to the Colossians, to chapter 2. We're continuing in a series of sermons in the book of Colossians. We come this morning to consider verses 6 through 10, though I'd like us to read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. So we'll read together Colossians 2, 1 through 10. If I could just say a quick word to the children here. Uh, missed you last week. I was sad that we could not gather. I hope that you enjoyed the snow that came. Uh, if you're like my kids, uh, you were out in the snow almost every day for four or five days. Uh, there's something I want to ask that you think about every time you see beautiful white lawn of snow or field of snow or something like that. The Bible uses snow as a picture in a handful of places and maybe the most precious places is in Isaiah 1 verse 18 And it's their kids that we're told that though our sins be as scarlet, scarlet is red, though our sins be as scarlet, uh, He is willing to make them whiter than snow. That is to say, for all those who trust in the salvation that God offers in His Son, Jesus Christ, our sins that are like crimson, like scarlet, like red, that cover us, God is pleased to forgive us and make them whiter than snow. Let's read together Colossians chapter two verses one through ten. Paul writes, verse one, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And then the verses we'll consider this morning. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Our gracious God, as we come before your word now, we pray that you would do as you have promised to do, which you have done for us so many times. Please send your spirit among us. May he breathe upon the word as it is preached. May we receive these words this morning from your word as the breathed out word of God inspired by your spirit. And may we be changed, molded, and shaped by the word. We pray that we would give our allegiance and our devotion and our hearts to no one else but to you and to your words and what you have said. And may we commit ourselves in all love and obedience and worship to live according to these words. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of the most pernicious errors to plague the church, at least in the West, throughout the centuries on down to today, is the idea... That Jesus Christ can be had as a Savior apart from a spirit wrought commitment to actually follow Him as Lord, to walk with Him and to obey Him, to have a vital relationship with Him as a disciple to His Master. The idea that you could have Christ as a Savior to you for your sins without having Him as the Lord who you follow. This is salvation without repentance. It is eternal life without discipleship. It is glory without obedience. This error has taken various forms throughout the years. You can see this error in historically sacramental traditions. You might think of the most sacramental and superstitious forms of Roman Catholicism. uh, Where for many Roman Catholics in the world, it is specifically adherence to a certain regiment of forms and traditions and ceremonies and sacraments that secure one's standing before God. So, if one is to be right with God, it really has nothing much to do with how you live, whether or not you live a holy life. It's, it's not really the issue. It's, were you baptized? Have you followed the ceremonies? Have you taken communion? Have you taken the last rites and that sort of thing? I think one of the crudest expressions of this particular Brand of Roman Catholicism can be seen in the death of John F. Kennedy, the 35th president of the United States. JFK was, of course, assassinated. He was shot in the head in Dallas, Texas. And while I suppose we think still living on some form of life support, there was this mad scurry to find a priest in Dallas somewhere who could come and administer the last rites to President Kennedy, to Give him this ceremony of the Catholic Church so that his fate might be sealed and that he might be right with God. Leave aside the fact that JFK was not following Jesus as the Lord, but was a profoundly immoral and wicked man involved in all sorts of sexual immorality his whole life long, but it was believed if he just took the last rites, he could be secured in the favor of God, whether he had a relationship with God or not. But you can see this not only in high church sacramental context, you can see this also in low church, casual, consumeristic, impotent American Christianity which peddles a doctrine of cheap grace. Walk an aisle, pray a prayer, and you will be right with God. It doesn't matter how you live so long as you repeat after me. Or just write a check to our ministry and you will be saved. A life of walking with Christ, and following Him as a disciple, and bringing one's life more and more in conformity to His will and His ways, is just its not really the issue. It's not that important. It's not needed to be the trajectory that follows that experience of signing the card or praying the prayer. What is important simply is that you do the thing. You say the words. You sign the check. You fill out the card. You show up for the meeting. You have the experience at one point in your life, and whether or not a trajectory of following Christ in obedience as a disciple with a living, vital relationship with Him is really not the issue. In all of these cases, what is being conveyed is that salvation in Christ can be had apart from an actual, vital, living, day-by-day, committed, obedient relationship with Him. And this understanding, all too common among us in our day, makes a mockery of the Bible's teaching on the nature of repentance and true saving faith, and it makes a mockery of the Bible's teaching on the Christian life, and it makes a mockery of the person of Christ Himself and the gospel that He brings. At the center of the Bible's view of Christianity is the person of Jesus Christ. His person, His work, His preeminence, His lordship, His rule and His authority, and His love for sinners. And He is, of course, the reward of the gospel. To have salvation at all is to have Jesus. To have Him as our teacher and our Lord, as our Savior, as our greatest treasure, as our eternal joy and our everlasting life. The Bible knows no notion of a genuine Christian who does not possess a living and vital day-by-day relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians, particularly now in chapter 2 and chapter 3, aims to establish this point. And to expound this point for us, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, he says in verse 6, as you received Him at one point in time when maybe you walked an aisle or you were at a camp or on the college campus or whatever it may be, as you received Him, Paul says, so walk in Christ, which is an idea almost impossible to limit. True Christianity involves a real and genuine walk with Christ in union and communion with the Lord. I said when we last met, the centrality of Christ is the theme of chapter 2. In a sense, it's a theme of the whole book. Maybe the preeminence of Christ is the theme of the book. The centrality of Christ is the theme of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. Verses 1 through 5, and those verses we considered now two weeks ago, which was the last time we gathered, we saw that in order to be properly Christ centered, As believers, we are to be ever-growing in our knowledge of Christ. Part of being Christ-centered means we grow in our knowledge of Christ, both in terms of cognitive understanding of content and material in the Bible about the Lord, and also growing in our knowledge of Him at the level of experience, of knowing Him as you would know a spouse or an intimate friend. This morning... I'd like us to talk about what it means to be properly Christ centered, not just now in terms of knowledge of Christ, but in terms of a dynamic walk in Christ. This morning, I'd like to open up the entailments of this call in verse 6 to walk in Christ, and then, time permitting, I'd like to highlight some aspects of the error Paul is trying to confront in this passage in verses 8 through 10. So we'll consider this passage under two main headings. First, The call to walk in Christ, which will receive the lion's share of our attention this morning. And then secondly, the call to resist false teaching. So first of all, consider with me the call to walk in Christ. Look again, if you would, at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, Abounding in thanksgiving. In some ways, those two verses, Colossians 2, 6 through 7, can serve as the thesis for the rest of the book. Paul will spend the rest of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 and the first half of chapter 4 teaching Christians how to live a Christ centered life at the level of one's walk in Christ or walk with Christ. What it means to submit to his lordship in all of life. What it means to live in union and communion with him as one's Savior and Lord. And it's in these verses that Paul lays out a fundamental principle of Christian living. He asserts that the whole of the Christian life is to be lived and experienced and worked out in union with Christ and in submission to His Lordship. My visiting friend here, maybe you don't identify as a Christian. I wonder if you know this, though, about the Christian life. Whatever you may have heard, this view of the Christian life taught by the Spirit-inspired apostle disallows the idea that we can compartmentalize our Christian faith. It is not possible. It is not right. It is not taught that a true and genuine Christian can compartmentalize Christ. So I have my work life, and I have my family life, and I have my recreational life, and I have my Christian life over here. No, Christ gets it all. To come to Christ at all involves a walk in Christ. All of our life, every aspect of it, comes under subjection to His will, to His reign, to His authority. It is an all or nothing, total, full contact Sport. The Bible's vision for the Christian life is one of total devotion to, fellowship with, and submission under Christ Jesus the Lord. To walk in Him is to live your life completely and totally in union with Him and under His authority. There is no corner or square inch of your life over which Jesus does not say, Mine. He has total rule, total reign, total access to every part of Now, we saw earlier in this series that chapter 1 established the universal preeminence and lordship of Christ over all things. Now, Paul is saying, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, the preeminent one, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of the dead, at some point in time, you heard the gospel preached, probably from Epaphras, you accepted it, you believed it as you received him. well, Now, brother, sister, continue to live in him continue to walk in Him, to work out what it means in both our thinking and our acting and our conduct, our speech, our thought life, to live under the Lordship of Christ. Christ and no other is to establish our values, to guide our thinking, and to direct our conduct. He is the Lord of my life, and I am to walk in union with Him and submission to Him. So we see here Part of what it means to be properly Christ centered is not only to have faith in Christ and to grow in our knowledge of Christ, it is also to walk in obedience to Him as a disciple at the level of our conduct and behavior. And you can appreciate, I hope, that this passage, this view of the Christian life that Paul is promoting, that Paul is conveying and teaching, allows for no half measures. We cannot be half in and half out with Jesus. We cannot be one foot in the kingdom of heaven and one foot in the world. The Christian life is total. It is all or nothing. To walk in Christ is to have your life defined by Christ in every way and in every particular. And that is, by the way, the meaning of the language that's used. What does it mean to walk in Christ? Why does he use that language? To walk in Christ. If I were to say, you children here, if I were to say, like, like I was here yesterday, and there was snow on the ground, and we were wondering, do we have to you know, set the service back a little bit later? But thankfully, the sun was fully shining. It was beating down on the parking lot, and by like 11 o'clock, all the snow and ice was gone, which was great, which meant we could have church. If I was walking in the parking lot as I was yesterday, and if I said, I'm walking in the sunlight, what would that mean? I'm walking in the sunlight. It would mean that all my steps are taken with the sunlight around me, and behind me, and before me, and to the left, and the right of me, and below me, and above me. It's it's everything. All my steps are taken in the sunlight. It is total. It consumes everything about my walk. The sunlight is everywhere, regulating my steps and leading me in the way that I should go. So it is with the language here in our passage. To walk in Christ means I have Christ before me and behind me and above me, and below me. He is utterly total, and complete, and full, and perfect in my whole life. He fills up every part of me. He defines every part of me. Every corner and crevice of my heart and my life belongs to Him, and all my conduct, and all my words, and all my thoughts, all my relationships are lived out in submission to Him, and in union and communion with Him. We walk in Christ. At this point, it might be helpful to remember that Paul's concern was that some Christians who came to Christ at first would begin eventually to shift away from Christ and the gospel and go after false teaching. I know it's been a couple weeks now, but last time we talked about the Colossian heresy which is in the background of chapter 2. Our brother Rex Blackburn, in a couple of weeks, can tell us a lot more about the Colossian heresy. And Paul is concerned to teach these disciples that they not remove Christ from the center and allow themselves to stray off and to go after philosophies and empty deceits and human traditions and empty things like that, but to stay centered on Christ. He's reminding them, as you receive Christ, so walk into Him. Remember, the Christian life is the life of a disciple, of a lifelong follower of Jesus. The gospel call is not just a call to repentance and faith. It is a call to follow the Lord. And so he's saying, don't think it is an acceptable view of the Christian life to begin with Jesus But then to graduate from Jesus into some sort of vain philosophy or something like that. He is the doorway into the Christian life and He is the pathway all the way to glory. And He is the end of the Christian life. He is everything. Don't shift away from the gospel, Paul is saying. Keep Christ at the center. As you began, as you received Him at first, so walk in Him, so continue in Him, rooted and built up. And it's really important we understand this, brothers and sisters. This is foundational to the Christian faith. Coming to Jesus is not... You have many passages where Jesus says, Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. If any man thirsts, let him come to me. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I am the light of the world. Whoever comes to me will not remain in darkness, but will have the light of life. What does it mean to come to Jesus? Coming to Jesus is not a momentary event that we participate in at one point in our lives. Okay, so it's appropriate, it's appropriate, I think, for us to ask one another, as Pastor Ben and I routinely do in membership interviews, When was it that you got saved? When was it that you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, repented of your sins, put your faith and trust in Him? I want to hear that story. Tell me your testimony. Tell me about when you came to know the Lord. It's appropriate to ask that kind of question. As long as we understand... We're not asking for you to vindicate a momentary experience at some point in your background that has no connection to your present today. To come to Christ is not merely to be able to identify some experience in your background in which you said certain words of commitment to Jesus. Coming to Jesus according to the Gospels and according to the New Testament is to follow Him. It is dynamic. It's not a static, punctiliar point in your background. It is dynamic walking with Him, following him, living in accord with the way that He makes for us. All of life is now lived with Jesus. He's leading me, I'm walking with him, He's teaching me, He's helping me. He's upholding me. He's guiding me. It's not to diminish the importance of an actual experience with Christ. It's not like this with everybody, but in my personal case, I think I can remember the day I was saved. I, I think I can remember the details of it. I remember where I was. I remember the hymnal that was before me about 10 o'clock at night, February 8, 2001, reading the hymn, And Can It Be?, and reading the line about my chains falling off and my heart being free and rising and going forth and follow thee. I think that's when I was saved, but... If that experience, which I think was genuine, if it did not produce a certain quality of life and a certain fruitfulness of life that the Lord says will be born out for all those who are the children of God, for all those who have been saved and have been born again by the Spirit of God, if there wasn't a trajectory of discipleship that continued from that point into the future, unto the present day, that experience would mean nothing to me. And I would have no interest in vindicating it as the day I got saved. Because you see, true faith in Jesus Christ and true repentance, true receiving of Jesus, results in a walk in Him. Results in the course of discipleship. Results in us following the Lord as those who are His people. You might think of it this way. I think I've used this illustration before. Uh, You might imagine a marriage ceremony. Here's a couple. I'll just use my wife and I. She really would prefer I keep her out of illustrations. I think she's in the nursery this morning, so just don't tell her. (laughs) We dated for a number of months, and um, then we were engaged, and then we were married on August 29th, 2014. You can tell her I got the date right. Okay? That you can share with her. And and uh, imagine, okay, the worst thing about dating. And being engaged, most people will say, is that um, you have to say goodbye at the end of the night. You're together, it's sweet, it's precious, and then you got to kiss goodnight and go home. But when you're married, you don't have to do that. New family started, you're together. But imagine, here has come the fateful day, the anticipated wedding day and the ceremony has happened and it's glorious that in the eyes of God and in the eyes of the assembly and in the eyes of one another, we make our vows and we say the words that have been written down and we covenant in marriage, pledging ourselves to one another. And then after the reception, we get in the getaway car with the paint and things on it. And, and what I do is drive her to her apartment And I say, "All right, I'll see you later. It's been nice knowing you. Today was really something. And then I drive off and I never call her again. Well, whatever may have happened back at the chapel, we're not living as a married couple. It's not what marriage is. We might call it marriage, but it is a sham marriage. Because marriage isn't the ceremony. Marriage is the covenant of life shared with one another. It is the one flesh union symbolized by the ceremony, maybe ratified in some legal sense by the state, but the marriage is the actual union. It's the covenanted life lived with one another. Well, sadly, too many people are content to think that if they followed some kind of ceremony, or if they said some pre written prayer, or if they had a certain experience at youth camp or at a college conference or something like that, whether or not an actual following of Christ that resulted in living union fellowship with Him ever took place, well, I'm a Christian and I'm saved. And what I'm saying to you, in light of what the Apostle Paul is saying in our passage this morning, is that you ain't. As you receive Christ, you must continue. You must walk. Don't you know? It's, it's not just about the wedding day. It's about the marriage. It's about the actual saving union. It's about the walk. It's about actually having Jesus, not just an experience we can point to in our background. So the man or woman who comes to turn from their sin and believe on Jesus truly is committing to a lifelong walk with Christ, to follow Him as the master. To submit to Him as the Lord. There's no other kind of coming to Christ. You begin in Christ and you continue in Christ as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord at the first. So we are to walk in Him now. Now, if you have been paying really, 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 really close attention, you might have discerned that I have been speaking about a walk in Christ in two distinct ways. If you've not noticed it, uh, don't be discouraged. I want to make this distinction clear now. What does it actually mean to walk in Christ? What does that mean? What does that language mean? What does it look like? What I want to do now is take apart these two ideas that I think together inform what it means to walk in Christ, and then I want to give points of application for each one. And if this is as far as we get this morning, I can live with that. Okay? What does it mean to walk in Christ? It involves two things. The first is submitting to His Lordship. What does it mean to walk in Christ? In the first place, it means submitting to His Lordship. Living under His Lordship. Well, what is that? How does one do that? Living under the Lordship of Christ is learning His will. Obeying His commands. Walking in His ways. Upholding His statutes. Living in the light of His teaching. So as a disciple, and one who is committed to walking in Christ... I must bring myself under the lordship of Christ, which means I must reject my sin. I must mortify it, and I must put it to death. I'm to put it off, because that is not how Christ, my Lord, has taught me and instructed me to walk. To walk in Christ is to submit to His lordship and to follow His precepts and His commands. We have a wonderful picture of the specifics of what this looks like in Colossians chapter 3. If you would turn over there for just a moment. You're in Colossians 2. Look over at Colossians 3. As Paul develops now what it means to walk in Christ and to come under the lordship and discipleship of Jesus. Look with me if you would at verse 5. What does it mean to submit to his lordship? It means no less than this. Colossians 3.5 Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. You're to walk in Christ. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality. My friend, have you submitted your sexual desires, your sexual preferences, your sexual life to the lordship of Christ? It is required of you. If you are to be his disciple, to come under his lordship. I can't have this over here in the corner. I say, Lord, you have it all. My sexual life, my desires, my preferences, my thoughts, they're yours and I will bring them, God being my helper, into subjection to the Lord. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. You might know this, that covetousness was the point for Paul that convinced him that he was a sinner. He coveted, he coveted, and he realized, I'm a lawbreaker, I need to be forgiven. And I need to bring myself under the lordship of Christ in this arena and in every other arena. Verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now look, in these two, you once walked. That's how you used to walk. Now you're walking in Christ, which has implications for our conduct. You used to walk in these things when you were living in them. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Verse 12, put on then, disciples of Jesus, walkers in Christ, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see, Paul's concern is the conduct of the Lord's people under the lordship of Christ. This putting off, And putting on our conduct, our behavior, our attitudes, our words. Everything is to come under His lordship. And I'll just say this as an aside. And I suppose as a point of application. This is a fundamental point of doctrine. My friend, there is no receiving Christ Jesus. That is not receiving Him as the Lord. There is no such thing. As believing on Christ the Savior. That does not include and involve believing on Him as the Lord. There is no true repentance and no true faith that doesn't result in following Jesus and obeying Him. Now listen, I know I have made this point probably dozens of times by now in the four or five years that we have been together. But it bears repeating. I hear this far too often and if I could be candid in all pastoral love and care, I hear this too often from people in this church. The idea goes like this, well, you know, pastor, I was saved and I came to faith in Christ when I was an eight-year-old little girl. I was saved then. But you see, I didn't follow Christ then. I, You know, as teenagers I want to do, and I came in my teenage years, I lived in the world and I slept around and I got involved in parties and things like that. And, and even in my college years, very wicked years for me, and then, and then it wasn't really until I had my first child when I was 29 years old that I realized something's got to change. And I came back to Jesus. I'm not trying to diminish whatever happened when you were eight years old. But part of Christian maturity and coming to believe and know and understand sound theology, the doctrines of the Bible, is that we begin to interpret our experiences according to what we see in the Scriptures. And I ask you, in light of the things I've said this morning that we have seen in God's Word, would the Bible teach that someone in some meaningful sense can be saved and become a child of God and be united to Christ and be born again, if for 25 years they never show Him the slightest regard? They don't read his word. They don't pray. They're not present in the gathering. They treat him as a stranger and a foreigner and an alien for those 25 years. Does that sound like someone who has received Christ Jesus and is walking in him? Some here you have adult children, and I'll hear this every now and again. Well, Pastor, you know, my son's a Christian, but you know, he's living in the world right now, he's a carnal Christian. He believed, trust me, no, he's a Christian. He, we raised him in the school and the church, and he went to the day school thing, and then he went to the camp, and, I, I, and then we baptized him. He's a Christian, but it's, oh, it's been a long time since he's been inside a church, and he doesn't really walk with Christ now, and, um, so pray for him that he'll come back. I just appeal to you, brother, sister, why would you want to believe that your son in that instance is actually a Christian? Why would you want to so diminish and derogate the teaching of Scripture as to believe what true repentance and faith and salvation looks like is living in the world not under the Lordship of Christ with no heed to Jesus at all? And would you want to believe that at any moment that could happen for you? I might live in all kinds of perversion and sin for decades, but that's not really the issue. I did walk the aisle. And I did pray the prayer. And that's the issue. Friends, in light of the Scriptures, I tell you, to come to Jesus at all, to come to Him truly, to come to Him actually, must involve coming to Him as the Lord of your life. There is no other coming to Jesus. None can have Jesus as Savior who does not have Him as Lord. And that is the fundamental confession the Apostle Paul gives to us in Romans 10 verse 9. Who can be saved? All those who call on him as Lord. He is the one. She is the one who will be saved. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, by way of application, let us be consistent and clear with our preaching of the gospel. And let us be consistent and clear in the way we disciple our children and people we talk to about what Christianity actually is, and what the gospel actually does, and what union with Christ and new birth actually looks like. But let me also press a little further by way of application. Let's not just get our doctrine right. Let us be those who are faithful not only in word, but in deed. Indeed. I ask you, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, are you walking in Him as the Lord? I just put this question to each one and to myself. I've had to go before the Lord in repentance this week in light of the question I want to ask you. Are there areas and aspects of your life, in all candor and all openness, that you are refusing to submit to the Lordship of Christ? You you are happy. Say, Lord, come in and take all of this. Come into my house and you can go in this room and in that room and this living area and this hallway. Oh, but that room in the corner, I don't want you to go in there. That's my room. I'm not ready for you to go in there. I'm not willing for your eyes to behold that chamber of my heart and my life. I just ask you before God, no raising hands, no giving an answer to me or an accountability partner. I'm asking you before the Lord. Can you acknowledge in your heart, you know, I've not been giving this to Jesus. I've not been submitting to him as a disciple in this arena. Maybe it's my finances. Maybe it's in my sexual life. Maybe it's with my time. Maybe it's with my relationships. I've not been living according to the will of Jesus Christ the Lord. I just ask you, search your own heart. And if there's repentance and heart work that needs to be done, don't fear that. Go to Jesus. Say, I'm sorry. I repent of this. I want you to have it. Have it all. I give it all to you. You are the Lord of my life and I will let you have every every bit, every detail, every particular. Okay, but now I said there's a second idea in walking in Christ. I can tell you already, we're not gonna get to that second point. Forget about it. Some of you who are anxious about the clock, don't worry about it, okay? Second point, what does it mean to walk in Christ? It means first of all, at least, to submit to his lordship. But now don't miss this. This is huge. To walk in Christ means that we walk in communion with Him. You could say in fellowship with Him. I'm the servant, He's the master. I submit to Him as Lord. But Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, I call you friends, right? Walking in Christ involves the idea of fellowship and communion in Him. This is abiding in Christ at the level of communion. It is reading His Word and experiencing Him on the level of fellowship through His Word. It is to delight in Him, not just to obey Him and to submit, to. it's to delight in Him, to treasure Him, to be satisfied in Him at the level of one's experience To know Him as the living risen Christ, as a living person, a living friend, in deeply authentic and genuine experiential ways. And to walk throughout your life in conversation with Him, and in fellowship with Him, and in companionship with Him, and in friendship with Him, in fellowship, and in communion with Him. Now, a lot of people, even as I say those words, communion, fellowship, we don't use those words a lot. It's like, that sounds wonderful, that sounds lovely, but how do I do that? To, to walk in Christ. I'm called to walk in Christ. You're telling me that means I have to know Him at the level of communion and fellowship. How does one commune with Christ? How does one fellowship with Christ? How does one experience Jesus as a friend and a companion? That's an important question. Could you answer that question? What I'm going to say here, I think, for some of us, will be like a key. It could be like a key to open treasures of Christian experience that maybe you've not known yet. Treasures of fellowship with God in Christ that will help you to go deeper with the Lord and experience Him on a deeper level. What does it mean to commune with Christ? How does one fellowship with Jesus? It is not... Retreating into an empty room, sitting in the middle of the floor, emptying emptying your mind of all content, and humming aloud, maybe lighting some candles, and then just receiving whatever thought unbeckoned comes into your mind. And that was fellowship with Jesus. It's not to be experienced principally in walking on the beach or in an open field or something like that, and looking up at the stars and feeling. Uh, Goosebumps or something like that. I think if that's what you're chasing as communion and fellowship with Christ, you're chasing an apparition. And like Esau, you are forsaking your birthright of true experiential communion with the living Christ for some porridge. So how does one fellowship with Christ? How does one commune with Christ? Friends, I believe this down to my toes. You meet with Christ, you fellowship with Christ, you commune with Him in His Word. What happens is you see the words, the deeds, the actions of the living Christ. And as you fellowship and commune with Him in the Word, what happens is He stands forth from the pages. As the living friend and Savior and Lord that He is, and you experience Him in the context of seeing His words in Scripture, especially in the Gospels. And you actually have a living interchange and interaction with Him and experience with Him, heartbeat to heartbeat, soul to soul, in His Word. Do you remember in John 6? Jesus is before the crowds, and they've been following Him because He fed them bread. And as Jesus begins to tell them what that means and what discipleship involves, that it really involves eating his flesh and drinking his blood, the people say, This is a hard saying. And they all forsake him. And Jesus looks at his disciples, and what does he say to them? Are you going to leave me too? Do you remember what Peter says? Lord, whither shall we go? You alone have the words. You alone have the words. Of eternal life. In the Bible, we have the words of eternal life and can experience Christ in the scriptures as a living, breathing Savior that He is, just as authentically as those disciples did who stood before Him on that mountain in John chapter 6. And this is how this works you feel in your neck a lump. And the last time you felt that lump in your neck, it was cancer. And you had a terrible two year long battle with cancer, and by the grace of God, you beat it. You're cancer free, and you have been for five years. But then one morning you wake up, and you feel your neck again, and a lump has reappeared. And you're full of anxiety. Not this again. I can't do this again. My family can't do this again. And so you go to the doctor and they do a biopsy and you're waiting for the results and you are riddled with fear and anxiety. And you come before the Word of God. Then you're reading in Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount. And there you read in chapter 6 that those who are the Lord's people need not be anxious for anything. And there Jesus says that as my Father clothes the lilies and as He feeds the sparrows, surely He'll take care of us, for aren't you worth more than many sparrows? And something, albeit somewhat mystical, but real happens. Put your hand to the lump, you read the words. And it's as though Jesus himself stands forth from the word and speaks to you. It's as if you were sitting on that mountain as a disciple receiving the word yourself because the word of God is living. And you receive the words from your Savior, hand on the cancer. And you say, Lord, I won't be anxious. Thank you. Thank you that you care for me. And thank you for assuring me of this. And thank you for fellowshipping with me this morning and teaching me. I need not be anxious for anything. It happens for those, you you lose your mother or you lose your father. Or your spouse dies. Or a child dies. And you're so sorrowful and you're broken and you're wondering, where was God and why did he do this? And then you read in John 11, Jesus with Martha and Mary as they are mourning the loss of their brother Lazarus. And Jesus is interacting with Martha. And she's asking him all these questions. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And what does Jesus say to her? Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? And you find your heart responding audibly even to the words that Jesus says in the context of John 11. And you say with Martha, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ who is coming into the world. You are the Son of God. I believe that you are the resurrection and the life. And you're helped and you're fed. And you see Jesus in his word. You're struggling with sin and temptation. You're struggling with perseverance and endurance. You're feeling assaulted by the evil one. You're seeking to obey the Lord, but it seems so hard sometimes and you're feeling like motivation is running low and you're discouraged. But then you come again to the Bible and you read in John 14, verse 23, He who loves me will keep my commandments. My Father will love him. And we will come to Him. And we will make our home with Him. And you're strengthened. You're filled with faith and life. I was running so low. I was feeling tempted. I was feeling tried. But my Jesus has now spoken to me in His Word. I have known fellowship and communion with Him. And He has said to me, truly, really, as the living Christ, speaking through His Word, He has told me, and those who love the Lord will obey. And those who obey will experience the love of God and the presence of the Lord with them. I tell you, brother, sister, you do that for a lifetime. Communing and fellowshipping with Christ at the level of His Word. You do that your whole life long. And then when you stand before Jesus bodily, in the new heavens and the new earth, You no longer depend only on faith, which is the eyesight of the soul. You see him with resurrected eyes. He will not appear unfamiliar to you. The communion and fellowship you experience, it'll it'll be new, it'll be richer, it'll be sweeter in so many ways, but it will not be an entirely new thing. And when you hear his voice, and he says to you, come here. Come and stand before me you'll recognize his voice. You'll say, I've heard that voice many times. I've heard it in the words. I've heard his voice speaking to me in the scriptures so many times and there it is again. As a sheep to a shepherd, I respond, I hear him. And, and when he lays his hand on your shoulder, you will say, I know the feeling of that touch. I have felt that hand many times. Guiding me and leading me and showing me how I'm to live and how I'm to walk. You will recognize that touch because you felt it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times as you have come before the Lord in his word. And when he brings you close to his bosom and when he wipes away every tear, you will know this is a familiar place. I have wept here many times and I have been comforted in the arms of my Savior. This is a place I have been and a place I will be forevermore. That communion, that kind of fellowship is held out for each one who is a child of God. And what is wonderful about the Christian faith? That it's not an exclusive club. We don't say to outsiders, we got our thing going on over here. And until you start acting right, you can't have it. The kind of fellowship and communion and salvation I am talking about in Jesus Christ is here for the taking for any who wants to turn from their sin and receive the Lord Jesus Christ and so walk in Him. And the promise is, for each one, you will experience fellowship and vital communion and a walking with the same Jesus who died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. You will know Him as a friend and as a Savior and as a Lord. And He will walk with you and teach you and disciple you and instruct you. And He will do that your whole life long. And then one day you will stand before Him in glory. You'll walk with Him forevermore in paradise. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that all of us would experience you at the level of true fellowship and communion through your word. I pray that everyone here would know a true experiential walk with the living, risen Christ. Please elevate our views of the Christian life. Please elevate our views of the Lord. Pray that all of us would know him more deeply, more intimately. So often our experiences are so much less than what we would wish them to be. Please bring us, each one, into the fullness of Christian experience, the fullness of truly knowing the living Jesus, walking in him. We pray that each one here who is outside of Christ would know beyond any shadow of a doubt, and in spite of any deception from Satan, and despite any... In position of our own sinful hearts, we pray that each one would know that I can have Jesus today, that he truly and sincerely invites me to come, to have my sins forgiven, to be made whiter than snow, and to experience him as a living friend and Savior and Lord for all my days. Make that bright and attractive to each one and bring it into each one of our experiences by repentance and faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.